The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Yes, we welcome the current bout of late season rain, but it's spring and California's farmers are itching to get back into the fields. We look at what one rice grower is doing while waiting for the fields to dry. The threat of Southern California mudslides on top of last December's Thomas fire has avocado growers in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties very worried. We talk with one grower who's been assessing damage to his orchards. What are the benefits of cover crops for attracting pollinators to your farm and orchards? We get the details from a University of California expert. The latest ag production numbers are in. Can you name California's top five agricultural products? Well, get your bets in now, and we'll tell you later on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Farmers throughout California are waiting for the March rains to cease to get back into the fields. That includes rice grower Everett Willie in Sutter County. He told the Rice News about his final preparations before field work and when it may start following the strong March rains. Especially this heavy of a rain, it's going to take three weeks probably before. If it stopped today, it'd probably take three weeks before we got in the fields. This year so far has been a lot better than last year is sense of being able to get into the fields hopefully uh last year was just crazy wet nothing ever dried out and it makes groundwork a lot hard more difficult hopefully i mean we need the rain but hopefully it kind of stops and just goes up into the mountains of snow and get a good snowpack but there's always something to do on the farm to wait out inclement weather and willie is spending a lot of these rainy days in his machine shop right now we're working on a disc blade and we're, it's coming along, kind of. <laughs> uh, it's new shafts and new blades, so with the new shafts, we're trying to find everything to make it fit better. Like that handiest of all tools, the sledgehammer. Harvested rice acreage had a nice bump up in California in 2016 compared to 2015, jumping up from 420,000 acres to 536,000 acres. A Pacific Bay storm is expected to bring both heavy rainfall totals and potential for mudslides and flash flooding in parts of Southern California. But USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says further north. We will see a very impressive snowstorm across higher elevations of the Sierra Nevada. Good news in what has been so far a well below normal winter mountain snowpack season for the primary source of the Golden State's water supply. And Rippey says that although there has been improvement in accumulation totals after a dismal start to the season. The snowpack in the Sierra Nevada heading into the storm system is only about 40% of the mid-March average in terms of its water equivalency. In fact, this current system and accompanying snowfall could boost Sierra Nevada snowpack totals significantly higher. And actually lead to a much improved water supply outlook for California's rivers and reservoirs for the runoff season. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture at Washington, D.C. Farmers in Southern California are still assessing damage from the Thomas Fire, a massive wildfire that affected Ventura and Santa Barbara counties back last December. It burned approximately 281,000 acres, becoming the largest wildfire in modern California history. The Thomas Fire swept into an avocado grove Ed McFadden manages in the hills above Fillmore in Ventura County on December 14th. Now that we're in spring, McFadden took a look at the fire-damaged trees, assessing which may survive and which which may need to be replaced. He told the California Farm Bureau Federation what he found. 
So on the night the fire came through, uh, it came, it swept through this barranca, and we didn't have a lot of a lot of leaf litter to burn here, but superheated air swept up the slope and scorched these trees here. And so what we're doing now is we're waiting, we're waiting to see how the trees are going to recover. And you can see this tree is, is got, has got some nice suckers coming up here, just starting to sprout here and some around the base here. So what we're hoping we can do with this tree is cut maybe, cut back down, staghorn it we call it, cut back down to a basic scaffolding uh, as we see where the damage is and, and we can re regrow the tree pretty well in a few years. So we'll have to look at each individual trees. We have, we have other trees that are not suckering so much here. Some of the ones around the edges that are probably dead and uh, will have to be replaced. So as spring progresses, we can see what happens and, and then we'll decide how it's going to be pruned and if we have to put in new trees and just how we're going to recover here. This past week, a massive atmospheric river rainstorm came ashore in Southern California, pummeling that area of Santa Barbara and Ventura counties with as much as three quarters of an inch of rain per hour, totals surpassing 10 inches in some areas. That's creating the threat of massive mudslides in the burn areas. At press time, damage estimates were not available. The Golden State, more than ever, is the nation's leader in fruit and nut production. According to the California Department of Food and Agriculture, California accounted for 56% of the United States' fruit and nut production and over 68% of the national value in 2016. In citrus crops, California accounted for 46% of the U.S. citrus production and 62% of their national value. In total, the state produced over 17 million tons of fruits and nuts in 2016. The state's total value of all fruits and nuts was $19.7 billion. And which crop leads the way? Well, grapes overtook almonds this year for the number one valued fruit or nut crop in California, coming in at $5.6 billion in production value. Almonds, though, were a close second at $5.2 billion. California is the number one producer of grapes in the United States, accounting for 88% of the total tonnage produced and nearly 90% of the production value. For almonds, California grows all of the domestic production and 80% of worldwide production. There is a fast riser, though, in the world of California's nuts, pistachios, which saw a 232% increase in production. Crops with record California production in 2016 were pistachios, pecans, mandarins, walnuts, almonds, strawberries, and raspberries. For nuts, California accounted for all of the national production of almonds, pistachios, and walnuts. For fruit, California grew all of the national production of figs, kiwi fruit, olives, clingstone peaches, dried plums, and raisins. And the almond boom keeps on going. There were at least 9.2 million almond trees sold by California Nursery since June 1st, 2016. That's an average of trees per acre of 135. This resulted in nearly 68,000 acres of almonds planted from June 2016 through May 2017. A little over 58% of the trees sold, about 40,000 acres, are new almond orchard acres. But is supply outstripping demand? In 2016, the price per pound of almonds, $2.44. Compare that to 2014, when almonds were fetching $4 a pound. 
U.S. ag export numbers usually dip down in December and January, and they have. But for the first four months of this 2018 fiscal year, that's October through January, U.S. exports totaled $50.7 billion, and compared to the same months a year earlier... Down $3 billion, or about 6%. And USDA trade analyst Bryce Cook says at the same time that exports have been declining from year-earlier levels kind of the opposite story on the import side. Imports are up 2.9 billion or about 7% from fiscal year 2017. And so our agricultural trade surplus has dropped 40% from $15 billion during the first four months of fiscal year 2017 to $8.9 billion, same time frame this fiscal year. But back to that $3 billion decline in our exports, Bryce Cook says a lot of that decline is coming from sagging soybean sales. Down about $3.3 billion on their own. Ooh, a 22% drop. He says Brazil has been selling a lot of beans around the world, especially to China. I asked Bryce Cook, is this just competition, or is this China uh, a way for them to retaliate against announced U.S. trade sanctions? And Cook's answer? This data that we're talking about only goes through the end of January, which was really before there was even a talk of these or aluminum tariffs, so that that wouldn't even be reflected. No, he says this is just a huge Brazilian crop being marketed. Brazil had a very good year. The amount of exports that, that they are exporting to China and across the world exceeded expectations and is cut into the share that the U.S. is able to sell to those top countries like China. For soybeans, but other bulk commodities are taking hits as well. Corn exports to the world are down 24% in value, 17% in actual shipments. Wheat, 6% down in value, 12% in volume. Cotton, so far, the bright spot in bulk trade, up 1% in value, down 1% in volume. High-value products are doing better. Those sales are up 4%. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. The latest figures are out from the California Department of Food and Agriculture regarding the state's agricultural output. And the state may have slightly fewer farms now, but their production outpaces every other state, and they're doing it on smaller farms here in the Golden State. California's crop cash receipts totaled over $46 billion in 2016. That's way ahead of number two Iowa at $26 billion. The top five agricultural commodities in California in 2016, milk and cream, followed by grapes, almonds, cattle and calves, and then lettuce. In 2016, 76,000 farms operated in California. That's about 1% fewer than in 2015. Over 27% of California farms generated commodity sales over $100,000, and that's greater than the national average of 20%. The amount of land devoted to farming and ranching in California decreased slightly to 25 million acres in 2016. The average farm size was 331 acres. That's up from the 2015 farm size, but still below the national 
national average of 442 acres. And if you're thinking of selling the farm, the average value of California farm real estate increased in 2016 to $7,900 per acre. That's up 2.6% from 2015. Secretary Perdue is concerned about ag products falling victim to retaliation in the wake of President Trump's announced tariffs on steel and aluminum. We're always concerned over any retaliation type of efforts, and we impressed upon the White House as well as Ambassador Lighthizer and Secretary Ross are the concerns that we have regarding agriculture and farm products being used as the weapons in the any retaliatory measure. He was speaking to reporters on the sidelines of the National Grain and Feed Association's annual convention in Arizona. That is the fear and the anxiety is that there will be. That's what retaliation is, uh, is tit for tat and retaliation is, uh, is possible, but it's not up to us how other countries will react. He pointed to one way countries could negotiate. I'm hoping that the exemptions the president has issued over the steel and aluminum could be done on a country-by-country basis. I think he has said he's willing to talk to any countries who want to come and make their case. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. As any good farmer knows, before you start applying pesticides, you need to positively identify the pest involved. But there's been a mystery lately in pistachio orchards, citrus orchards, pomegranates, and more. Who's eating all the nuts and fruit? It wasn't the usual suspects. Rachel Long is a UC Cooperative Extension farm advisor based in Woodland, and she talks about the detective work that was involved in positively identifying this culprit. So when I got a call to look at a pistachio orchard, I just thought for sure it's going to be ground squirrels because that's usually what it is. And uh, went out there and uh, and just didn't see any ground squirrels. Okay, so ground squirrels are diurnal, so they're active during the day. And uh, just didn't see any. And when I looked at these holes in the ground, uh, they were also uh, way too small for a, uh, for a ground squirrel. So ground squirrel holes will be about four inches or more in diameter. And then you usually see a squirrel somewhere around it. But there was no squirrel, and these holes were about two to three inches in diameter with, uh, with a little bit of you know, piles of nuts around it. And, uh, and so I knew that it could not have been a uh, deer mice or voles because it was, it was too big for that. Uh, the deer mice and voles tend to be one to two inches in diameter, and these were three, and ground squirrels are four. So I just was really scratching my head going, what on earth is this? Because... You know, because uh, it just was very confusing because there was just somewhere in between. And uh, so I thought about rats, um, but uh, but I just didn't know what a roof rat uh, would, would be doing underground, burrowing underground. And uh, and so uh, uh, but did uh, uh, talk to a, a colleague and, and she assured me that uh, that roof rats in the country can burrow underground and nest underground. So they. They're above ground and nest ground and, of course, nocturnal at night. So that's why I didn't see any. Rachel Long goes in depth on roof rats in orchards and how to control them on next week's edition of the KSTE Farm Hour. On Capitol Hill this week, there are reports of delays in rolling out farm bill language with some differences of opinion among lawmakers on some issues that may have bogged down the farm bill process, leading Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue to say, I would be a huge advocate for a 2018 farm bill, not a 2019 or 2020 farm bill. Perdue telling an audience in Washington this week that yes, the bill is likely to be building mainly on the current bill, making it potentially easier to craft, and yes, many lawmakers are working to get the bill finished this year. But realistically, we also have to understand uh, that uh, 
2018 is an even-numbered year, and we have things happen in this country in even-numbered years, and that's elections, and uh, the Farm Bill, unfortunately, can't uh, totally uh, overcome the politics that gets involved in the Farm Bill. But he's still hopeful there will be a 2018 Farm Bill. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Well, there's one less regulatory hurdle for farmers. The USDA announced the decision to withdraw the Organic Livestock and Poultry Practices final rule that was published back in January of 2017. The rule would have increased federal regulation of livestock and poultry for certified organic producers as well as the handlers. The withdrawal becomes a Effective May 13, 2018. According to USDA reports for 2017, the number of certified organic operations increased domestically by 7% and globally by 11%. Industry estimates show that organic sales in the United States reached almost $47 billion in 2016. That reflects an increase of almost $3.7 billion since 2015. National Ag Day is designed to recognize the importance of agriculture in the lives of every American. With a number of events taking place across the country, it's a day to celebrate farmers and ranchers and appreciate all that they provide. Isabella Chisholm, vice chair of the American Farm Bureau Women's Leadership Committee and member of the Agriculture Council of America, says National Ag Day is a great opportunity for people involved in all types of agriculture to connect with people outside of the industry. I really like making those connections outside of farming because that's when I see the spark in someone's eye when I talk about what I do, what my family and I do on our farm, and they're maybe hearing something in a different way for the very first time. And I feel like a success when someone understands a little more about what we do on our family farm. Chisholm says agriculture has come a long way over the last decade because of advances in technology. How many of us have smartphones and would just groan at the fact if we were told we had to go back to the flip phones and texting and communicating that way? It's much the same way with agriculture. We can say that we've increased yield fivefold across the board because of the use of technology. Chisholm says the improved technology helps farmers protect animal and soil health. Innovations like precision agriculture allow farmers to place seeds and seed protectors in the ground with extreme accuracy and prevent waste. She says it's also vital for farmers and ranchers to share their personal stories. It's important as I watch our children and grandchildren talk about what we do on the farm and see the reactions of their peers when they go out and pick and eat a sweet corn and bite right into it. That's safe food and it also happens to be affordable food and food we grow on our farm as do many other farm families throughout the United States. Chad Smith, Washington. If you're looking for help on the farm to control pests, you may want to consider barn owls and attracting bats. Barn owls need to eat around 5,000 prey items a year. That includes mice, voles, and shrews. They're one of the most silent flyers in the world, making them very good at sneaking up on their prey. And about bats, did you know a single brown bat can eat 
eat up to a thousand mosquitoes per hour and are one of the longest living mammals for their size. Find out more about how barn owls and bats can help you out at the Barn Owl and Bat Preservation Program kickoff at the Western Yolo Grange on Forest Avenue in Gwinda. That's coming up Thursday, March 29th at 6 p.m. Bat boxes and owl boxes will be available for purchase. Speakers include wildlife biologist Carrie Went and wildlife biologist Carlos Went, who will be talking about bats. Again, find out more about barn owls and bats this Thursday, March 29th, 6 p.m. at the Western Yolo Grange in Gwinda. Spring is more than fruit tree blossoms and Easter eggs. In our area, springtime means fresh, locally grown asparagus. At his farm's packing facility in Yolo County, farmer Jim Durst told the California Farm Bureau Federation about the impact of the weather on this year's asparagus season. My name is Jim Durst, and I'm an organic farmer in western Yolo County. And we grow a lot of veg crops, but our crop during the spring is asparagus. Our asparagus harvest season usually starts around mid-February to 1st of March, sometime like that. But this year, because January was pretty warm, everything warmed up, the soil warmed up, and the spears started emerging early. And we started harvesting, and production was good, and then we got started getting hit with a lot of frosty days and, and overnight frost, and when some of the spears were damaged and the soil cooled off again, and then we got these really delightful rains that came through and created mud, which makes it difficult to get into the fields. The weather has still a little bit rainy, but the temperatures have come up. And so we're moving into pretty full production right now. Hopefully in the next uh, week or two weeks, we'll, we'll, we will be running at full production. We have about 200 acres of asparagus. We ship uh, asparagus throughout the United States, but mainly California, and we hope that when you go to the store that you will look for California grown asparagus because it's by far superior. You may be looking harder and harder to find that California-grown asparagus. Asparagus acreage has shrunk dramatically in California over the last 10 years, slipping from 20,000 harvested acres in 2007 to 8,500 acres in 2016. Other labor-intensive crops that had decreased production in California include cabbage, celery, garlic, leaf lettuce, mushrooms, and pumpkins. And now, let's talk about two food items that typically get more attention at Easter time, although not exactly together. Both of those items provide a lot of pleasure this time of year, but if not handled right, they could provide a lot of trouble. Coming up, some tips on coloring and cooking those eggs and choosing and handling that ham. And it's Oh, yes, yes, if we have time, we'll throw in some stuff about lamb as well. On this edition of Agriculture USA, I'm Gary Crawford. If you plan on dying some... No, no, if you plan on dying some eggs this season, you are carrying on a tradition that goes back a long way. Back to ancient Egypt, according to our resident history expert, Anne Efland. Egyptians buried eggs in their tombs, and the Persians and Egyptians actually exchanged eggs that were decorated in spring colors. And today, even with a lot of plastic eggs being used for hiding and hunting... People with children still dye eggs. Uh -huh, but Agriculture Department food safety expert Marianne Gravley, who manages the department's meat and poultry hotline, says there are some things you should know. First, buy those eggs right about now, as soon as you can, days or a week before you're going to 
to dye them. That way the air sac inside gets a little bigger and it makes them easier to peel. Next, Gravity says to cook those eggs, put them in water, bring to a boil, and just as it starts boiling, take the pan off of the burner, let it sit for 20 minutes, then put those eggs in some really cold water to stop the cooking process. And if you're not going to dye those eggs, immediately get them in the fridge immediately. Even though they're cooked, they're still perishable food, so you need to keep them refrigerated. Because there's bacteria in the air, on our hands, everywhere, and even though the egg has a shell that looks impervious... Once you've cooked that egg, the shell is now more porous, so bacteria can get into the egg. So next... We're on an Easter egg hunt. Marianne recommends if you really plan on eating those eggs, don't use them for egg hunts, especially outdoors. She also says don't eat those eggs if they have been at room temperature for more than two hours at any point after cooking them. Even though you've cooked the food, it still can become contaminated, and at that temperature, bacteria can grow. We don't suggest putting those eggs in people's tombs either. Uh, dying the eggs should be enough. Next, a true holiday treat that uh, you don't color or hide, hopefully. There's nothing like ham for the holiday. Yes, ham's big around this time of year, and if you are an experienced hamster, you might still learn something from Marianne on this. She says from the calls they get on the Meat and Poultry Hotline, there are people who think if it's ham and it says cured on there, you don't have to refrigerate it. Wrong. That ham is just like any other meat or poultry product. Needs to stay in the refrigerator, needs to be cooked or heated to the proper temperature. Many of us buy the ready-to-eat hams, but if it's uncooked, then cook it to at least an internal temperature with a food thermometer of 145 degrees. That'll kill any bacteria that may be in or on it. Once it reaches 145 degrees, it's safe, but you may want to cook it a few minutes longer. But now even cooked hams or ready-to-eat hams are not shelf-stable. Gravity says just like the eggs, don't leave ham out at room temperature for more than two hours. Bacteria in the air, on the hands, whatever, can invade it, multiply to sickening levels. So get it in the fridge. It'll be okay there for about five days, or you can freeze ham, however. It doesn't freeze as well as some other meats because of the curing process, but it'll keep its best quality for two to four months in the freezer. There you are. Now, that's our show for today. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Uh, have we got time? Yes, we do. Lamb, another favorite this time of year. It's amazing, though, how few people have actually tried it, let alone prepared it. Most people are still a little sheepish about it, but here are a few tips from Marianne. First, for leg of lamb. You're going to roast it at 325 degrees for 20 minutes per pound, give or take five minutes. But again, best bet, just like ham, use that food thermometer, get the lamb up to 145 degrees for safety. Even at 145, you'll still find some pink near the bone. So when you're serving your guests, depending on whether they like it well done or rare, you'll have options for them. Because some people like the crispy outside, especially if you're grilling it. You know, Easter time is usually nice weather, and so lamb is delicious cooked on the grill. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, again, it is bad, though, if you leave cooked lamb out for more than two hours at room temperature. Also, she says don't put the warm bone with the meat on it in the fridge. It won't cool down fast enough to prevent bacteria from multiplying in there. Cut the meat off and then put that in the fridge. And if you have any questions on any of this stuff, call the Meat and Poultry Hotline. Here's the number, 888-MP-HOTLINE. 888-MP-HOTLINE or go online to askkaren.gov. Askkaren.gov. So that's our eggs, ham, and lamb story on Agriculture USA. I'm Slightly Hammy, Gary Crawford, reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Easter remains the biggest time for American lamb consumption, but the holiday doesn't have much influence when California ranchers market their lambs. Most 
Most California-grown lambs are born in the fall, but they're marketed after Easter, many being sold directly to restaurants and other customers. Both ranchers and marketers report strong demand for California lamb this year. It may be years before consumers can buy burgers grown in labs or tenderloin steaks cultured in test tubes. But as investors pour funds into the so-called clean meat industry, beef producers are petitioning regulators to ensure the new products can't bear the words meat or beef on their labels. Beef producers say such labels risk obscuring the origins of these new products, meats that are grown from cell cultures in a lab, not on animals. The Washington Post reports that clean meat, though, has a certain ring to it. Lab-grown cultured meat product, though, sounds like a cousin of pink slime. It's the reason beef producers and clean meat advocates are committed to a long-term battle over the terms used to describe cultured meat and how those terms are defined. What does trade between the United States and Ireland look like? We're exporting a lot of the livestock feed ingredients like corn gluten feed and distillers dried grains. So that'll get us up to at least 400 million of purely agriculture products. Going the other direction, U.S. imports from Ireland are roughly in line with that same level, but they do tend to be more processed products like beer, some dairy products, cheeses. That was Stan Phillips, the agricultural counselor at the U.S. Embassy in London. His portfolio includes Ireland. The country is a very green country, and it's pretty tempered because the Gulf Stream, I think, keeps it from getting too cold. So they have grass almost year-round. That's great for their cattle and sheep industry. But he says the country needs protein for its livestock feed. So we're exporting quite a bit of corn gluten feed from the United States and distillers dried grains. That's probably the top U.S. export. In fact, I think Ireland is the number one market around the world for U.S. corn gluten feed exports. Ireland is one country that will be negatively affected by Brexit. Britain's decision to leave the European Union. And they're very worried that with the United Kingdom leaving the European Union eventually, additional trade barriers will come in place that could cause problems for Irish exports to the UK. So I think they're well advised to be diversifying their export markets around the world. Phillips sees some areas of potential expansion of trade relations between the US and Ireland. One of the things that they're particularly interested in would be lamb exports to the United States. They have a fairly substantial sheep industry. I think after Australia and New Zealand, Ireland would be the number three exporter of lamb and sheep meat around the world. Which is something the Irish apparently are considering too. They're working through the process of getting approval to do so. They haven't got it yet, but that's in process. Meanwhile, as Brexit moves closer to becoming a reality, he has at least one concern about the U.S. trading relationship with Britain. The United Kingdom has to leave the European Union before they can legally sign a free trade agreement with the United States or any else. The current schedule has Britain leaving the EU in April 2019. They're trying to extend that a bit with a transition period of a couple of years. So we still have potentially a couple, two or three years ahead of us before we would be in a position where we could sign a free trade agreement with the UK. Which he adds will lead to a period of uncertainty. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. <music> Coming up Wednesday, March 28th, 9 to 11.30 a.m. At the Muller Ranch in Woodland, it's Insectary Cover Crop Field Day. What's that all about? Let's talk with one of the presenters that day, Rachel Long, farm advisor for UC Cooperative Extension based in Woodland. And Rachel, why insectary cover crops? Why are those so important in the world of agriculture? Well, the uh, the insectary cover crops, what that refers to is essentially just flowering plants. 
that uh, that produce a lot of uh, nectar and pollen to attract in uh, natural enemies uh, like uh, parasitoid wasps and lacewings and lady beetles to your orchard. And then from from those insectary plants, then they disperse out and uh, and help control different uh, insect pests like uh, like aphids. And as we've talked about in the past, a lot of farmers are going to ask the question, well, what's in it for me? How much is this going to cost me? And actually having a good cover crop that attracts a lot of beneficials is probably going to reduce your pesticide costs in the future. Right. That's certainly uh, that's certainly uh, a, a, a good bet because these uh, these insectary uh, cover crops. So, again, referring to really just good flowering plants that bring in these natural enemies that uh, that they they are used by a lot of our beneficial insects like the uh, surfed flies and lacewings and lady lady beetles and or ladybugs and these uh, these insects they we've measured them dispersing you know long distance so you know a good 10 rows away we still uh, pick up these uh, these insects that uh, that we know uh, had fed on that insectary cover crop and then dispersed and so our natural enemies are just so important in uh, in helping to uh, to naturally manage our pests and to keep them at uh, at lower levels. And so, providing any of these flowering resources on a farm is is really critical to enhancing this uh, biological pest control on our farms that that we've measured has been able to help reduce some insecticide use. In the past, we've talked about hedgerows and their mm-hmm. benefits to the farm. In your presentation coming up on March the 28th, is this different? Is it? Are you talking strictly cover crops or hedgerows as well? So I'm going to be focusing only on the uh, on the cover crops. And you know, the added uh, value of the cover crops, in addition to attracting in uh, beneficial insects like our natural enemies, is that these uh, these cover crops really help to uh, um, to fix nitrogen to provide uh, nitrogen uh, uh, back in the soil, a natural form of uh, of nitrogen. And uh, so, so, so these uh, the cover crops uh, are are really critical because you you can help uh, increase like the biomass in your soil and help increase the tilth and the fertility and also increase the uh, naturally the, uh, the the nutrients in the soil and in addition you can get the the beneficial insect activity. So so the hedgerows are fabulous. You know those are those are around fields and they tend to be uh, permanent. Whereas the uh, the cover crops. Uh, oftentimes in our, um, certainly in our, in our orchards, uh, uh, like, uh, like almonds or almonds, you, you need a, uh, an, an annual cover crop, um, that will die off in the summertime. And, uh, and then it, uh, sometimes can come back. But again, the whole idea is that, uh, that you're increasing the tilth and the fertility and you're increasing, uh, uh, you know, nitrogen for the nitrogen fixing plants and you're getting the beneficial insects. So, so hedgerows are just on the field edges. And uh, they're only really targeting uh, beneficial insects like our bees and our natural enemies. But uh, but cover crops, you're getting a lot more benefit for your soil. There are going to be a lot of presenters there at the Insectary Cover Crop Field Day. They'll be talking about, as you mentioned, uh, soil health, uh, insect mm-hmm. ecology, plant species selection. Why do it? How well does it work? And you're going to be talking about cover cropping for beneficial insects. And is that more the design of the field in order to uh, keep man and beast happy? 
Right. So, uh, so the whole idea for the uh, insectary uh, cover crops in the in the orchards is that uh, you don't have to plant every single row with a uh, beneficial uh, insect mix. You know, maybe every every ten rows you could put a strip of uh, of this uh, insectary planting on your farm. And uh, and so it's just a uh, it's just an a, another way another tool of uh, bringing more uh, biodiversity onto onto our farmland so that so that we uh, as I say get better biocontrol of our pests. What are some of the best uh, cool season cover crops for this purpose? Well, you know, I really really like the uh, crimson clover, the the one that has the beautiful uh, red flowers. And uh, um, and then certainly any of the uh, legumes like your uh, um, your your peas, like the uh, Magnus field peas, are really good. And uh, but then you can also just seed in a bunch of different uh, wildflowers and uh, and like the uh, like certainly the California poppy or the uh, or these uh, tidy tips, these beautiful little uh, little yellow flowers. So pretty much, you know, almost anything within the cover crop is going to is going to be uh, flowering and help to attract the uh, beneficial insects. Really where the challenge comes in is that, uh, is that y- you want to disc in your cover crop, um, usually about, you know, maybe 40% bloom in order to maximize the nitrogen fixation and the amount of nitrogen that the plant is, uh, is producing. Cause if you wait until it fully, uh, seeds, then a lot of that nitrogen goes into the seed and you really want it to be, you know, in the plant. So you incorporate it and you get that benefit. And so, um, and so with some of these, uh, the, the beneficial uh, insect mixes, then uh, those would need to flower a little bit longer. And so I think the, uh, the, the planting them, you know, maybe every 10 rows or something would, um, would, uh, would allow for, uh, for maybe leaving occasional strips that have these flowering plants. And then the, the other ones would be using for, uh, for maximizing the nitrogen and uh, uh, fixation and also organic matter. So, so, so that that is one of the challenges. But the the neat thing is, is that my data has shown that that you don't need to plant an insectary mix, you know, every single row to get the benefit from these uh, natural enemies. They move and they move long distances. And uh, we've, you know, picked them up. Oh gosh, you know, a, a good 600 feet out in in fields. And so, uh, and so that's uh, just something that I'll be uh, talking about also because everybody asks, you know, well, how how many strips do I have to put in, or how many hedgerows do I have to put in before I see benefit? And and we just see benefit uh, from from one hedgerow or one insect strip because the insects that use these flowering plants, they they need it. You know, they, they it's like the parasitoid wasps are are related to honeybees, and so honeybees of course need the nectar and pollen, and the parasitoid wasps being related to them need that pollen and nectar as well. So so, so that's uh, some of the uh, information that I'll be presenting. And also what's kind of nifty too, and I think we've talked about this in the past, is when you have these plants that attract the uh, native bees, the native bees can help guide the honeybees as, as far as pollination goes by mixing up their pattern of pollination. <laughs> I know. Isn't that just so neat? I just think that's a, that's just been a neat story that's come out in terms of the uh, the native bees like our bumblebees or our blue orchard bees that uh, that they're they're out there and they're working for us and uh, they they certainly uh, are do some pollination but probably the the best impact that they have is is on the honeybee activity so when a uh, native bee like your your bumblebee or blue orchard bee kind of, it interacts with the honeybee 
they they um it's like there's this uh, sort of a territorial uh, activity that occurs and and uh, and and then the honeybee kind of forgets what it's doing and uh, and then it it disperses so it crosses over rows and uh, when it crosses over rows you know it's it's uh, going to another row and uh, then you're getting that cross pollination between uh, different varieties of plants and the same thing happens in sunflowers for seed production where you may have a row of male plants and then a row of female plants and you need that cross pollination in order to uh, to generate that seed for seed production and uh, and sometimes the honeybees you know they just have a job to do and they'll just go straight down and collect pollen or others will go straight down a row and collect nectar and it's when they uh, interact with uh, a native bee out there that they uh, that you get this territorialism and the territory activity, and uh, and then it pushes the uh, the honeybee around a little bit more, so you get better pollination and better seed set. Yeah, it's amazing, and that's just some of what you're going to learn at Insectary Cover Crop Field Day mm-hmm. coming up March 28th. That's a Wednesday from nine to eleven thirty a.m. Mm-hmm. And it'll be held at the Muller Ranch in Woodland. If people want more information, they can visit the uh, sponsoring group, the Xerces Society, and their website is xerces.org. And Xerces is spelled X-E-R-C-E-S dot org. It's uh, going to be a, a wonderful morning of uh, great information for farmers looking to attract more beneficial insects, get better pollination, and cut their pesticide costs as well. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor based in Woodland, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Row crop farmers might wonder what is coming down the pike in terms of new ag technology, particularly when it applies to their combines and implements. But as ag tech expert Chad Colby points out, some of that new tech is already here, perhaps just not yet in farm machinery. The obvious to the consumer is the automation in the automobile industry. They're all spending billions of dollars on automation. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. That's normal. Some of the proposed technology is not only expected to ease operations for the ag producer, but become more intuitive to the machinery's operations. Machine learning is going to come where the combine will just adjust automatically, correctly, based on changing environments in the combine. Lots of guys are working on that. Existing remote sensing technologies will advance in coming years, and precision agriculture should become more precise with new tech developments. You're only going to add that extra nitrogen if you need it, and I think there's going to be some new technology in the soil to do that. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast at KSTE.com.